0: good evening donald trump's legal woes mount russia faces off with ukraine and the united nations security council death by incarceration in the united states and how medical debt is killing us with these and other stories i'm paul D'Arienzo with the news for thursday september 22nd 2022 it's been a week of worsening legal problems for donald trump Without the protection of the presidency, the challenges are piling up. Far-reaching fraud allegations in New York by Attorney General Tish James, reversal of a ruling that had stopped the Department of Justice from reviewing classified documents taken in a raid at Mar-a-Lago. Now, after a ruling by the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, prosecutors can take a closer look at the cache of documents, many marked classified, found strewn and unguarded in the former president's residence. In an interview on Fox News, Trump insisted he had declassified the highly secret documents he had at Mar-a-Lago. He insisted the president had the power to declassify information, even by thinking about it. A special master appointed to assess the documents complained that Trump has yet to provide any evidence to back up his claims that he had declassified the documents. Hours later, the court, including two Trump appointees, overwhelmingly rejected arguments Trump was entitled to a special review of the 100 classified documents. Trump has a history of surviving legal peril, like accusations he colluded with Russia. He was twice impeached, but acquitted by the Senate each time. Nevertheless, the former president could be the first to face indictment. The United States urged other nations to tell Russia to stop making nuclear threats and end the horror of its war in Ukraine at a high-profile U.N. Security Council meeting Thursday, held as lesser world leaders spoke at the General Assembly on the other side of the building. The session followed Russia's surprise order to call 300,000 reserves for the first time since World War II. Russian President Vladimir Putin said his nuclear-armed country would use all means available to us to defend itself. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said the call-up and plans by Russia to hold referendums in the
1: Donbas region are menacing. To add fuel to the fire that he started shows his utter contempt for the UN Charter, for the General Assembly, and for this council. The very international order that we have gathered here to uphold is being shredded before our eyes. We cannot, we will not allow President Putin to get away with it. Defending Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity is about much more than standing up for one nation's right to choose its own path, fundamental as that right is. It's also about protecting an international order where no nation can redraw the borders of another by force. If we fail to defend this principle when the Kremlin is so flagrantly violating it, we send a message to aggressors everywhere that they can ignore it too. We put every country at risk. We open the door to a less secure a less peaceful world
0: russian foreign minister sergey lavrov accused the west of recklessly supporting ukraine
2: attention oh. of several delegations to discuss the topic of impunity Uh, In Ukraine, I think this is very timely because this is precisely this term, Uh, impunity, reflects what has been going on in that country since 2014. The national radical forces, open Russophobes and neo-Nazis, came to power then as a result of an armed coup with direct support of Western countries. And right after that. They uh, took the path of lawlessness and totally ignoring main rights and freedoms: the right to life, right of expression, right of access to information, uh, right of conscience, the right to use you know, native language. And uh, uh, there's an attempt today to impose on us a completely different narrative about Russian aggression as the origin of uh, all the tragedy this ignores the fact that for over eight years the Ukrainian army and fighters from the uh, nationalist uh, formations uh, killed and continue to kill um, uh, inhabitants of Donbas with impunity simply because they uh, refuse to recognize the result of the coup d'état in Kiev
0: Russian foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov meanwhile at the Pentagon a spokesperson said Russia's nuclear threats and mobilizations are a sign of Moscow's weakness.
3: By making these types of announcements about sham referenda or threats about attacking territory, it doesn't change the facts, operational facts on the ground, which are that Ukrainians will continue to fight for their country. The Russian military is dealing with some significant challenges on the ground, and the international community will stand behind Ukraine
0: In New York, Lavrov pointed to former Ukrainian president Petro Poroshenko, who Russia claims came to power in a 2014 coup, as an example of Western hypocrisy. Lavrov shrugged off criticism of Russia's mobilization. He said Ukraine had been mobilizing its forces against Russia with the help of the United States for years.
2: In Ukraine, for many years now, total mobilization of of all adult uh, uh, population, including women, is being conducted in order to recruit them into the ranks of nationalist battalions and the armed forces. In fact, Mr. Poroshenko just a couple months ago proudly stated that the Minsk Agreements, which he signed, neither him nor no one else in the Ukraine had any intention of implementing these, that these agreements were simply needed to win time in order to obtain weapons from the West to uh, for the war against Russia.
0: The Minsk Agreement was a ceasefire signed in the capital of Belarus in 2014. The agreement asserted Ukraine would never join NATO. Meanwhile, at the Pentagon, a spokesperson said that Russia's mobilization would take some time and might not address the weakness in Moscow's position, illustrated by the humiliating defeat inflicted by Ukraine's army on Russian forces in Izium.
3: My understanding is these would primarily be reservists or members of the, the Russian military that had retired and were in an individual ready reserve type of status. All that to say it's our assessment that It would take time for Russia to train and prepare and equip these forces. While in many ways this may address a manpower issue for Russia, what's not clear is whether or not it could significantly address the command and control, the logistics, the sustainment, and importantly, the morale issues that we've seen Russian forces in Ukraine experience. In New York,
0: United Nations Secretary-General Antonio Guterres said the war in Ukraine is a dangerous moment for humanity.
4: As I have said from the start, this census war has unlimited potential to do terrible harm in Ukraine and around the world. The idea of nuclear conflict, once unthinkable, has become a subject of debate. This,
3: in itself, is
4: totally unacceptable. All nuclear-armed states should recommit to the non-use and total elimination of nuclear weapons. I am also deeply concerned by reports of plans to organize so-called referenda in areas of Ukraine that are not currently under government control. Any annexation of a state's territory by another state resulting from a threat or use of force is a violation of the UN Charter and of international law.
0: Nevertheless, the recriminations continue. As Russia's Lavrov spoke at the Security Council, numerous diplomats stood and left the room. After he was done speaking, Lavrov abruptly left as well, but not before insulting Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. Lavrov said the policy of the U.S. and its allies towards Zelensky is, he's a son of a bitch, but he's our son of a bitch. Ukraine's foreign minister, Dmitry Kuleba, made light of the comment while impugning the courage of Russian soldiers.
1: Russian diplomats are directly complicit because their lies inside these crimes and cover them up. Apparently, the only thing in today's address by Russia in this torrent of lies, worthy of reaction is the inappropriate slang used when mentioning a president of a foreign country, the president of Ukraine. I also noted today that Russian diplomats flee almost as aptly as Russian soldiers.
0: Koleba added, "The Russians are confident that they can get away with anything and they are entitled to do anything they want." Besides hearing out the feuding world leaders, the Security Council can't do much. Russia is one of five members of the council who can veto any decision made by the body. Last week, a coalition of civil and human rights organizations filed a complaint urging the United Nations to declare the United States' practice of subjecting people to life sentences without possibility of parole, cruel, racist, and arbitrary. They call it death by incarceration and argue that holding a person their whole life in prison is a form of torture. A staff attorney for the Pittsburgh-based Abolitionist Law Center is Quinn Cousins. He says death by incarceration is a keystone of the U.S. prison system.
5: We focus on, through our advocacy and legal work, is abolishing uh, life without parole sentences or uh, what many advocates call death by incarceration sentences. And really any sentence that from the outset, from the time of sentencing, will basically be a permanent incarceration, a sentence where somebody doesn't have any chance to come home or any meaningful chance to come home uh, back to their community before passing away. So we've kind of identified this and the, the leaders, the movement leaders that we take leadership from have identified this as one of the main pillars of our carceral system here in the United States you know, one of the main things we found through doing this work is that a lot of the folks who are serving these sentences are people who, would they have the opportunity to come outside of prison? They would be leaders in their communities. They would be doing all of the kind of work that they're doing inside of prison, outside of the public eye, out on the street. A lot of that work from the folks that we've worked with is geared towards, you know, preventing violence, preventing people from making the mistakes that they did or causing harm in some other way.
0: How do we get here? How did this system begin?
5: There's a, A long history of life sentences in the u.s what changed however around the 1970s is that these life sentences became permanent so in pennsylvania for example we've had we've had life sentences on the books since you know the early 1900s for the most part those have been life without parole sentences so there's been no opportunity for parole but what used to be the case and is no longer the case is that commutation or executive clemency existed as a sort of release valve for people. So people would be, there was sort of an expectation that people would serve 10, 15, maybe 20 years of a life sentence before they'd be released. But then really as the backlash to some of the more radical movements of the the 60s and the early 70s started to take effect in the U.S., not only in Pennsylvania, but across the country, uh, we saw this increase in life without parole sentencing in particular Prior to that, I believe only seven states had a life without parole sentence on the books. And since then, nearly every state has a life without parole sentence on the books. Around this same time, the U.S. Supreme Court effectively put a moratorium on on the death penalty in the U.S. Mm. And when that happened, a lot of states began transitioning to life without parole as an alternative to the death penalty. Uh, Particularly during the interim period when a lot of states didn't have an active death penalty sentence on the books. But since then, they've maintained the practice and it's just increased ever since then with more and more people serving the sentence up to now approximately 200,000 people in the U.S. are serving some form of death by incarceration sentence.
0: What Trump was talking about being tough on crime, he meant white supremacy.
5: Absolutely. And I I think generally when our politicians are operating from a position of spinelessness, even those who say they support the, the same goals that sometimes that we would advocate for even, it's a different matter when they're chasing re-election, and you know sometimes going against the wishes of their donors and large corporate donors. In a lot of cases, we've seen some interesting cross-party agreement on on this. In some ways, some on the right who are a little bit more you know fiscally conservative might see this as a huge waste of money because as people are in prison longer and longer, costs increase. There's just you know with no people cycling in and out of prison, they're just going to be in there for longer in general. So that's one thing that advocates have really pushed on. But in general, you're absolutely right. that.
0: What do you expect from the U.N.?
5: Our letter is requesting an investigation into the practice of death by incarceration sentences in the U.S. A few specific international human rights laws that we believe that the the U.S. death by incarceration sentencing regime is uh, violating. So in particular, the, the prohibition on torture and other cruel and degrading treatment or punishments. Prohibition against racial discrimination due to the just wild racial disparities of those serving death by incarceration sentences. Something like 12% of the U.S. population is black, while approximately 46% of those serving DVI sentences are black, as well as uh, violations on the right to life and uh, arbitrary deprivation of liberty. So these are all international human rights laws. Obviously, we don't have any illusion that the U.S., if one of the special rapporteurs or working groups, declares that this, this punishment violates international law, that the U.S. is going to just snap its fingers and, and outlaw it. And we don't certainly don't see anything being binding. It's an, an important tool for advocates to continue their push. To abolish this sentence would be a pretty powerful and and strong rebuke of the U.S. carceral state.
0: Quinn Cousins is a staff attorney for the Pittsburgh-based Abolitionist Law Center. There are about 200,000 people in U.S. prisons sentenced to life without possibility of parole. The United States is also the only country in the world that sentences children under 18 to life without parole. 80% of all people in the world serving life without parole sentences in U.S. prisons. And Hurricane Fiona is making its closest approach to Bermuda with hurricane force winds and dangerous surf expected throughout Friday before the storm system slams into Atlantic Canada over the weekend. Hurricane warnings and tropical storm warnings have been issued along hundreds of miles of coastline from Nova Scotia to Newfoundland. Fiona remains a category 4 hurricane with winds of 130 miles per hour, the Atlantic Ocean's strongest hurricane so far. FIONA is expected to pass 200 miles to the west of Bermuda and then straight north to the Canadian Maritimes. Meanwhile, in Puerto Rico, at least four people were killed by the storm. FEMA officials were still assessing the extent of the damage. Puerto Rico's privatized electric utility, Luma Energy, said more than a million clients were still without power. FEMA said 80% of the island is still in the dark, with hospitals running on generators. President Joe Biden was in New York for meetings with world leaders, but he attended a video meeting with Governor Pedro Perelusi. He promised more aid to the stricken island, a U.S. colony, for more than a century.
5: I'm here because we're laser-focused on what's happening to the people of Puerto Rico again. We were just talking almost to the day, almost at least to the week, and uh, five years after Hurricane Maria, which was devastating. And as I told you, Gov, when we spoke earlier this week, we're surging federal resources to Puerto Rico. And we'll do everything, everything we can to meet the urgent needs you have. And we know they're real and they're significant. And uh, we're there. An old bad joke, I'm from the federal government. I'm here to help. But we really are. Uh, and
0: uh, more than 800,000 people in Puerto Rico are without water and 1,000 were rescued from rising waters. Some regions of the island were hit with 25 inches of rain by Monday morning. And on Capitol Hill, the House of Representatives on Wednesday passed a set of electoral reforms aimed at shoring up ambiguities and archaic language in the presidential certification process, loopholes exploited by Donald Trump and his allies to try and overturn the 2020 election. The Presidential Election Reform Act passed in the House 229-203, to with nine Republicans voting with Democrats. The legislation would make it more difficult for members of Congress to muck up the certification process with objections that aren't based on legitimate concerns. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Uh, the, um, when we're speaking of democracy, we we're very proud that yesterday uh, the,
6: Congress passed the, pres- the House passed the Presidential Election Reform Act in bipartisan fashion. It ensures that the Vice President cannot reject official sl- slates of electors or delay the count. That is a fact, but it removes all doubt and ensures that. Limits the type of objections raised during the certification to those outlined in the Constitution. Not just anything you can think of, but what are the legitimate concerns that somebody might raise and requires a majority of each chamber to, to sustain an objection. What it also does, though, is to say if somebody has this, a, um, an objection... It takes a third of the of the um, members to to bring it forth, and, th- and then a majority for each chamber to sustain it. And then on the state level, it requires governors to submit election results to Congress in a timely fashion and makes clear that states cannot change the rules after the election.
0: The law updates the Electoral Count Act, written in 1887, A similar Senate bill is being hammered out by Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Susan Collins of Maine. Experts say a final law must be passed before the 2024 presidential election heats up. And in more Washington news. Earlier this month, the president got what he wanted when Congress passed the Inflation Reduction Act. The law reduces insulin costs, caps out-of-pocket spending for Medicare beneficiaries, and allows the federal government to negotiate prices on the costliest prescription drugs. It'll be at least four years before all provisions of the act are implemented. The changes come as the United States arguably faces several years of the biggest health crisis in its history. COVID-19 exposed the holes in the medical safety net, with people of color the hardest hit. The average life expectancy of Americans has actually declined for the first time. A professor in the CUNY School of Public Health at Hunter College is Steffi Woolhandler. She's co-author of a study showing uninsured and poorly insured people are at risk of falling into debt paying for medical treatments, especially if they're insured by private companies or Medicaid Advantage or private-public partnership. Will Handler spoke with the news earlier today.
7: We were able to analyze three consecutive years of Census Bureau data. So we were able to follow families for between one and three years. We did find that about one out of every five households was carrying medical debt. About one out of every 10 adults was incurring medical debt. Because we were able to look over time, we found that people who started with no debts and then acquired medical debt during the study were also more likely to become newly unable to pay for rent, for mortgage. For utilities for nutritious food and they were more likely to lose their home due to eviction or foreclosure the risk of those problems was more than doubled in folks who newly acquired medical debt the problem here is people get sick they end up in medical debt that medical debt causes a worsening of their living conditions the living conditions or what we call social determinants of health. You're going to get sicker over time. They get sicker and they acquire even more debt and more worsening of their living conditions.
0: Who's being affected? If the poor are covered, or are they, who is suffering this?
7: We found that medical debt was just as common among middle-income people as among poor people. It's common in everyone. We're talking one in five households. It was just as common in middle-income families as in families living below the poverty line. Only the most affluent income group was spared medical debt in our study. Folks go into medical debt because they have no insurance. You know, we still have about 9% of the population with no insurance. But the majority of people who entered medical debt had insurance. Often they had private insurance. Private insurance offered very little protection privately insured people had the same rates of medical debt as the population as a whole medical debts were particularly common in folks with private insurance who had that high deductible private insurance or that had medicare advantage private insurance it's a privatized form of medicare private health insurance in this country is a defective product people get private health insurance they purchase it in good faith and then when they get sick, they find out there's co-payments, deductibles, uncovered services that leave them in medical debt. And that's exactly what we found in our study, that high deductible private coverage, Medicare Advantage plans were associated with relatively high rates of medical debt.
0: Are people going to be allowed to die? Are they really the death panel is going to be really the finances?
7: We're actually in trouble as a nation in terms of our life expectancy. Uh, currently, people in the United States on average live three and a half years shorter than people in, for instance, Western Europe or Canada. So this is a very big problem. It's a problem in terms of the low, you know, the poor living conditions of many Americans. But it's also a problem that when people get sick, they can't afford to get the care they need.
0: What's the answer to this, in your opinion?
7: I'm a strong supporter of single-payer national health insurance for the United States, what some people call the Canadian system. You know, in Canada, hospital care is completely free at the time of use, right? It's paid for by taxes, and if you're sick and need hospital care, completely free. If you need doctor care, it's completely free, and that's been true for some time, the current government has committed to making medications free. They have not been free in the past, but they've committed to creating a pharmacare system in Canada that will make medications free. Same thing in Scotland. Everything you need medically is free in Scotland, including parking at the hospital. Right? The patients are sick. Why are we asking them to take money out of their pocket for medical care? That's something that should be paid through taxes. That's the solution. Over the long term, I'm a physician and I work with the physician community in advocating for single payer national health insurance.
0: Steffi Woolhandler is a professor at the CUNY School of Public Health at Hunter College. And finally, New York City's Districting Commission in a close vote rejected the latest proposed city council district lines. The controversy centers in three council districts in Staten Island. Some want to include a swath of Brooklyn to add diversity to the district, as others claimed it would be a burden to cross the Verrazano Bridge to meet your councilperson. The commission's chairman, Dennis Walcott, said the group would get right back to work. A final set of lines must be submitted by December 7th in anticipation of next year's council elections. And that's the news for Thursday, September 22nd, 2022. The news is produced, written, and anchored by myself, Paul Durienzo. You can hear the news at pauldirienzo.com or at soundcloud.com. The news is available on your favorite podcast server. From New York City, I'm Paul Durienzo. Thanks for listening.